0: how are you oh my gosh you, Andrew Yang you launched my entire presidential run really that's barely an exaggeration <laughs> that's that there was this period when everyone who was uh, supporting our campaign was because they they heard me on your podcast
1: yeah well it, it's really it was it was amazing to witness and um, I was very happy to play a part in it obviously the the major assist was to um get you on Rogan's podcast after you did mine, which um, just completely blew you up because he has this, an audience so large that the mainstream media has yet to even understand what's happening in podcasting. It was fantastic to watch your ascendancy. And, uh, you know, I can only imagine it's the beginning of the Andrew Yang show on various fronts. So uh, I'm happy to see the the adventures. It's great to be a part of it.
0: Well, you've been a huge part of it, Sam. And I have to tell you that i I've, I remember our conversation, and then I remember watching your your conversation with Joe on AI after you and I spoke, right And then I realized, oh my gosh, Sam was waiting for someone like me <laughs> where you'd been talking about trying to prepare society for AI for years, and you were like, "How the heck is this going to happen?" And I only figured out after the fact that you'd essentially paved the road for me before I'd even come along.
1: I think in any political cycle you would be a breath of fresh air, but in the current environment, I mean now even more so, but you know, back when you first appeared, what was so amazing and and depressing was you know the juxtaposition between what should be possible in a US president and what is actual in the case of trump before you know anyone ever heard of you we all knew that there are people in the world who understand science and who have read widely and who are deeply curious about the way the world works and who are normal human beings who have fallen in love with some person in, at some point in their lives you know who feel real compassion for the suffering of other people and people who are clearly moved by ethical arguments and the progress of ideas. And you are clearly one of these people. You're someone for whom it's obvious that the last thousand years of human progress has meant something. And what we have in place of a person like that in the Oval Office, we have a barbarian with a smartphone who appears to love nothing but fame and money and golf. And an interesting thought has never escaped his lips. Yeah, I mean the juxtaposition is so grotesque. The level of hope that uh, was, you know, hurled on your shoulders was kind of abnormal because of, you know, the context in which you're appearing. But it, it, really, it's um, the fact that you're not in any sense a, a normal politician is wonderful, and and I I hope we. Draw more and more lessons from um, how far you got in the last campaign, and and I hope you stay in the center of our conversation about how to dig out of COVID land. Because obviously your primary plank in your campaign, the the UBI, I mean that is an idea whose time has come. And it, it it was almost like you know you were a prophet in light of what was soon to arrive in in terms of an economic cataclysm. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to talking through all of this with you. It's quite a moment we're living through.
0: Yeah, I thought we we're going to automate jobs and send everyone home. And it turns out that we're all home for a different reason mm. right now. You know, I was joking with somebody, but it was serious. It's like, I, I do think that I had the only stump speech that referenced the Spanish flu of 1918. Right. <laughs> the, 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 for me, I was saying that that was the last time American life expectancy declined for three years in a row, right? which we just had happen in the, the last three years. But this time, I have to say, Sam, it's like the things I was concerned about have all been compressed into a very short time frame. You no, know, instead of closing fifty percent of America's malls, we've closed virtually all of them, and now I know some of them are reopening, but a lot of those jobs are going to be gone for good.
1: Yeah, so I mean, maybe we can talk about what you think the COVID pandemic has exposed in our society. I mean, obviously, it's accelerated the arrival of the future. What are you expecting to be true once we emerge from this at whatever point I mean what like in terms of the effects on the economy and how effective or not our pumping trillions of dollars into the system will be, and how the postmortem on that might reveal incredible levels of corruption, what are you expecting to be true in six months or a year?
0: I think these are catastrophic times for tens of millions of Americans. And it's frustrating that, for whatever reason, the gravity of the situation is not as clear to some people as it is to me or others who who, do, who know how tenuous a hold many Americans already had on their month-to-month, paycheck-to-paycheck ability to make ends meet. And watching our government try to send money to people even is incredibly frustrating because we're missing so many people and the mechanisms we're using. You know, like hearing these stories of people calling their state unemployment office day after day and just never getting through. And and, and, because we're asking systems to do things that they're not designed to do. Like the state unemployment office is not designed to all of a sudden take millions of inquiries. And the thing that, Occurs to me, as I think would occur to a lot of people listening to this, why do people have to call a phone line and connect to a person in order to access these benefits that, that have been
1: authorized? Andrew, let's drill down on that for a second because this is so bizarre and potentially it's such a missed opportunity. So, your idea, which doesn't originate with you, but which you have brought into such prominence of universal basic income, is that this is something that the government can do well, right? We should be able to just send checks to everybody. But in the current environment, we're recognizing that even that isn't good enough. We need a digital infrastructure that can directly give money to people. And correct me if I'm wrong, currently, you can't even apply for this money unless you have a previous tax return, which is going to leave out millions of people who most need money. So maybe you can discuss how far we're falling short of what should be possible here in, in terms of just getting money to people as quickly as we can.
0: So I just want to relate my experience with my organization just a number of weeks ago. We were trying to get money into people's hands. And we called Morgan Chase, we called Citigroup and said, hey, can we get money to people in the Bronx who have accounts with you and need it? and they couldn't help us. We even asked them, can we buy bank cards from you that we will somehow physically get into people's hands? They couldn't help us with that. We wound up working with a local organization that had people's financial info, neighborhood trust, and we sent a million dollars to a thousand families in the Bronx through that organization. And my direct experience with this is the same experience we're having society-wide, where the government's saying, okay, let's send everyone money. Let's send everyone $1,200. And then they look around and say, well, how do we know where people are? How do we know what account to send the money to or address if it's a check? And the best information they have is through tax returns. That's the the majority of the mechanism they're using. And that misses tons of people and misses, it turns out, millions of people who didn't file taxes because they made below a certain amount or they're working in, frankly, some kind of informal environment where maybe they're cleaning people's houses and they're just getting paid cash. And so, you know, they, they didn't file taxes either because they didn't make enough or because frankly, they were just like, well, uh, like, I'm just going to operate and pay my bills in cash. So because we're using people's tax returns, if you didn't have that connection to the government and a bank account on record for them to return your, your tax re- refund to, mm-hmm. then you're not getting money. And that's, unfortunately, that's tens of millions of the most needy Americans, because if you can imagine the folks that aren't filing taxes, many of them are quite poor.
1: Yeah. The thing about UBI, which strikes me as so much better than many remedies that seem very much like it, is that there's no question of means testing it, because people worry, well, does it really make sense to be sending Jeff Bezos a Thousand dollar check. That seems like a waste of money. But obviously, if our tax structure were rational, Jeff would be paying an enormous amount, I mean, more than anyone back into the system in taxes. So it wouldn't matter if he was also on the dole getting UBI, right? So it seems like we should just take all the friction out of this and get money to everyone in the right increments, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, we should be flooding the zone with money honestly and the the incredibly frustrating thing is that if you really wanted to account for the Jeffs of the world you could just take out of their tax returns later you yeah. know it's like like they can just get pay it back in 2020 or 2021 in their tax returns next year and i've talked to people who did not qualify for stimulus checks because their income was too high in 2018 and they're in desperate straits now and i was like their income has right. gone to zero maybe they had a small business And so they're looking up saying, like, why am I not getting this $1,200? We should be giving them the $1,200. And if it turns out they didn't need it, we can always just claw it back in taxes later. Though, to me, that shouldn't even be that necessary. But if you were going to to worry about the Jeffs of the world, you could always just get it back after the crisis has abated. You know, like the, the theory being that right now we're in crisis mode.
1: Right. So my concern now is that this is going to increase wealth inequality in ways that will be politically intolerable. And, you know, how we navigate that moment I think is everything hinges on that. I mean, I I worry about the loss of social cohesion. I worry about a, a level of political partisanship that really seems to be indicative of a failing country. And I feel like we've been on the cusp of that really every day under Trump with respect to the level of partisan rhetoric and the degree to which the two sides can't get on the same page for the purposes of ordinary political compromise. Uh, And you obviously at this point know much more about that than I do. But I just worry that in the aftermath of whatever is going to happen here economically, the people who will weather this, you know, much better than anyone else are the people who are already very well off. And Whether a middle class exists in a year is really an open question, and so um, I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. And what did you learn through the experience of campaigning all that time and going to more American cities than I will ever go to in the rest of my life?
0: You should join me next time, Sam. Join me. You (laughs) could cover every city. We could be tied in terms of number of town halls.
1: It had to be an amazing experience. So, uh, what's your view of of our Ongoing economic emergency between now and next year.
0: You hit the nail on the head where we are going to eviscerate what's left of the American middle class. There was an executive in in Silicon Valley, Vala Afshar, who said 2020 will vastly accelerate the adoption of, and then he listed 10 things, and you think about them, you're like, oh, yeah, all of that's happening e commerce, drone delivery, digital contactless payments, video conferencing, autonomous vehicles. Wearable health monitors, 3D manufacturing, voice mobile applications, online learning, and smart robotics. Those things were already on the table. And now we've just revved them up into overdrive because we need to do some of these things for public health reasons. And if you Mm. look at autonomous cars and trucks, wouldn't you rather get picked up in a vehicle that has been sanitized and a human has not sat in? Unfortunately, like, All of the arguments is like, oh, you need a person for that. It's like now the the person is a net negative in terms of someone's confidence level, in terms of not just the way we feel about it, but the actual transmission rate of the coronavirus. And so you're seeing companies that were on the fence about throwing people overboard and automating processes now making a very, very clear investment in these technologies And you can see it in what the stock market is saying, where when people are announcing record layoffs, their prices go up, the stock values go up Mm. because investors know that if you can shrink your workforce, then the returns on capital will be higher. So this is going to be disastrous for tens of millions of American workers over time. And the government is the only entity that can meaningfully try to resuscitate the middle class and the opportunities available to most Americans in the days to come. And I know many people listening to this are not going to love the message that the government is going to be the center of the universe for these decisions. But unfortunately, that's what we're faced with.
1: Yeah, well, that's always the first sticking point. When you talk to someone who a fantastically wealthy person who recoils at the idea of paying more in taxes, who doesn't like the concept of redistribution, not because they're callously inconsiderate of the suffering of other people, and not because they don't care about wealth inequality. Really, the the first thing you encounter is that everyone has a fundamental skepticism, and granted, some of this is well-earned, that the government can do anything right, that it just seems like a waste of money to give the government more money to try to solve problems. And there's this, you know, the strain of libertarianism that suggests that it should, by default, more or less always fall to the private sector to solve these problems. But a few things I think should be obvious here. One is that there are many problems for which the private sector can't produce a ready solution, either because the incentives just aren't there. Or you just have a massive coordination problem, and you just can't respond flexibly all at once. And I I think you know, responding to a global pandemic is certainly an obvious commercial for a problem that needs to be solved, even beyond government. I mean, we need a global response to this problem. The lack of you know our internal leadership is galling and terrifying, but you know our our complete abdication of any role in the, the wider world in coordinating response to COVID, is also just embarrassing. But so the idea that we should be starving the government in the context where, at any moment, problems of this sort can appear, and we're dealing with, you know, a public health emergency and an economic emergency simultaneously. And, you know, we have these piecemeal efforts of, you know, various well-intentioned billionaires, you know, riding in on their white horse's to solve some very local problem in you know, delivering PPE or something you know and in probably the most heroic case you have Bill Gates really doing great work inspiring you know vaccine research and
0: or, or Jack Dorsey committing a billion
1: yeah, yeah I mean so that, that's great, but I mean clearly that is not a surrogate for the wise use of government resources, and even if you think the government is just incompetent and can't spend your money well, the answer to that problem is to create a better government.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, to, it's to actually get it operating at a higher level. Not to say it's like, oh, well, because like you said, there really is no other answer to some of these massive problems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an incredible time.
0: It's the impossible task, man. I remember when I was telling people I was going to run, there's a Silicon Valley CEO who said to me, he was like, what are you doing? Like you're going into the most Useless environment possible because he he liked me and like you know thought thought I was effective and he was like why are you running headlong into the the universe of inefficacy and then I said to him I said look like are things working well in government no in many many respects but like do we need to get it working at a higher level to avoid calamity I I say yes and I said this obviously before the coronavirus crisis came. You know it's funny Sam my wife uh, and I this was a little while ago but there was like an interview you sat down for and you were you were describing me and you said something about it's like um this Andrew Yang fellow he seems like a, a normal enough guy except that he's uh, crazy enough to ruin his life running for president <laughs> are, <laughs> I don't know if you remember saying that
1: No no I don't Yeah so what are your thoughts on that front I mean what was your what's the net of your experience running and uh, do you think you will run again or find uh, or seek some other role in uh, government? What's the plan there?
0: Well, my motivations are the same as they've ever been. And the problems have gotten bigger, unfortunately. Like I, I I thought, well, it's unacceptable that we're letting this freight train just bear down on us and just ignore it. And And in my mind, the freight train was the progressive dehumanization of our economy. And I saw in the numbers that We had already blasted away millions of manufacturing jobs and there was no real feedback mechanism unless you count Trump and his Mm -hmm. victory, because most of those manufacturing jobs were in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, like the swing states that Trump all won. And now the problems are bigger than ever. And, you know, my motivation is as high as it's ever been. So I'm just still trying to solve problems every day. And my capacity to solve problems is higher now than it was when I started my presidential run. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's there's no change on that front. I mean, I certainly learned a lot about becoming president by by, by running for president, where I, I have a sense as to what I'd missed when I sat down with you a couple of years ago, and like I, I didn't realize that the process was going to entail certain things. But as long as the problems are there, and and I'm Able to contribute, I'm going to do it. And if that includes running for office again, then that's what I'm going to do.
1: Is there anything you would do differently in hindsight?
0: No, it's really fascinating. I mean, I could definitely talk about this for a while. I mean, one change I would make is that I did not realize that there were a couple hundred Beltway journalists in DC that had significant influence over the press narrative. And I did not sit down with most of them, and most of them. Treated me like a marginal anomaly slash novelty slash ignore him and it'll go away. Mm. <laughs> Pick your, and I'm not sure if my sitting down with him would have changed that. Uh, not all of them are as thoughtful as someone like you, where you just evaluate someone based upon your own judgment of them. Uh, like that's one thing I, I figured out too is that there are so many people that represent these institutions that didn't really think for themselves. They just like operated on whatever the institutional incentives or motivations were. So I don't know if my sitting down with these couple hundred people would have moved the needle, but mm. uh, I would have done that. The there is, the, there were so many learnings in Iowa and in New Hampshire where we got my favorables up, and this is actually true nationwide, where my favorability ratings were as high or higher than virtually any other candidate in terms of do people like me, trust me, think I'm reasonable, think I'm well intended, and we just couldn't get them over the threshold of this person should be president, (laughs) like right now. (laughs) Like we, We got a lot of people to a point where they were like, really like Yang, like really hope he becomes a cabinet member or something along those lines. But we couldn't quite get people over a threshold of put him in the White House this year. And if I run again, that's one of the things I'm spending my time doing is, frankly, normalizing myself more where it just felt like a little bit too much change for some people.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I can imagine it was also the calculation of you know, electability. It's like, you know, I want this guy to be president, but I would imagine that the rest of the country might not, or he he's not going to be able to sell himself in this election cycle. And so for anyone who's privileging getting rid of Trump above all else, that has to be a factor. I mean, that's how we wound up with Biden, right? I mean, is Biden anyone's first choice? I'm not sure. But the electability and not Trump calculus has gotten us here. I don't know if you want to plunge into a discussion of uh, the remaining months of the 2020 election now, or if, if you have other topics you want <laughs> to mean, hit.
0: Well, you know, it's, I, I mean, I, I'm on the same page you are, Sam, where I think that Trump's a total disaster and defeating him is job one. That's uh, why I ran and now i'm going to help joe defeat him because joe's going to be the democratic nominee and to me any day trump's in office is bad for civilization yeah bad for humanity
1: yeah well so let's jump into that do you and you know i'm not sure if your tongue is going to be tied on any of these topics <laughs> but so i'm just going to just push and, until i hit a wall yeah I, obviously he's Confined himself to picking a a woman for VP,
0: which he did not mention to me when I talked to him <laughs> <No>. <laughs> about this very topic. Right,
1: right, that's funny. So, do you have a strong opinion about who you think he should choose to make his chances as favorable as possible?
0: No, I I now obviously have spent some time with Amy Klobuchar and, and Kamala Harris. Uh, I've met Stacey Abrams, but I don't know her well. I I don't know Whitmer the governor of Michigan. I don't know a couple of the other people that we we all know are in the consideration set. I like both Kamala and Amy. They they're good warm human beings behind the scenes. Oh, and Elizabeth Warren, I shouldn't leave mm-hmm. her out cuz I, I I know that she's also uh, Elizabeth has always been very generous to me as well where I don't know if you remember the debate exchange when she was like when you know we were arguing over automation and I asked her to read my book and then she actually read my book uh, <laughs> and, then like, oh, nice. and then we talked about it like the next debate where she, you know, commended me on, on, on it. So I like the candidates that I know, Elizabeth, Kamala, Amy in particular. I don't have any insight as to where Joe's going to go with that choice.
1: Do you have a sense of what would be the best choice purely from a, the pragmatic point of view, just getting elected?
0: You know, I'd, I'd have to look at the numbers because I know Joe's team must have numbers on this where they're they're running it, hmm. and like, I, I don't have that data, so I wouldn't want to you know play pundit. Right. <laughs> it, it is funny, Sam. It's like, like you know, obviously, if anyone had run the like, hey, should Andrew Yang run for president before the fact, the answer always would have been no, and so like obviously that wasn't a very data driven decision. <laughs> but but, it, but it, it like when we were running, did we try and get? data for any opportunity that we we had in front of us, whether it was like how we were spending our money or who we were targeting or what to name the freedom dividend or whatever the choices were. It's like when we could get information, we'd get information. There was a point, thanks to you and other supporters, where we actually could run private polls, which we would do. And they were very helpful and insightful. Like we we kept figuring out, you know, one of the things I was proudest of, Sam, is we got the approval for universal basic income up from something like 25% to 66% in the state of Iowa. Mm. And we we knew that because we were asking people about it. And so, yeah, it's like, it is funny. It's like certain decisions you make based upon instinct and gut and what you think is right. And then certain things you try and put a finger in the wind and get some numbers for.
1: Right. So now how worried are you about Biden campaign at this point. I mean, so the, the two major things that I see pulling the wind out of his sails are um, obviously the, the sense that he's too old to be doing this. And here we have a, I mean, there, there are two forms of asymmetric warfare here. And the first is, I guess, neurological. I'm so every one of his gaffes seems to suggest senescence on, on some level every one of Trump's gaffes seems to just suggest more Trump. And, you know, I have no doubt that Biden is showing the signs of, of age. I mean, you just have to look at video of him speaking 20 years ago to see that. I also know I I don't really care given the current circumstance. And, you know, Trump is, whether you want to think of him in in neurological terms or psychological ones, I mean, he's he's a deranged person. And he's also a terrible speaker. I mean, it's you know, also word salad that you get out of him much of the time. But strangely, it doesn't suggest anything like, you know, normal infirmity, you know, even to his detractors, right? I mean, he, Trump has this preternatural energy, you know, of a 300-pound child. And on some level, there's an unfortunate comparison between him and Biden with respect to age and the inability to get to the end of a paragraph with something like 100% confidence. They both show it, but it just shows up very differently, and it has different political consequences. So there's that concern about Biden. Is he just too old to be in a debate with Trump or to campaign successfully? And then there's the, the Me Too scandal or or incipient scandal, with the, with the Tara Reid allegations. And again, he's up against somebody who can match him, you know, 10, 20x uh, for every Me Too scandal, but it doesn't matter in Trump's world. Everyone has priced that in. You know, I, I, It wouldn't even matter if we had video of Trump mauling some young woman at a beauty pageant, right? I mean, it's just he's functioning in a different political universe. So I'm just wondering how, how you think those two issues that are dragging on Biden uh, are likely to play out. How concerned are you?
0: I'm going to say three things about this, Sam, and I, I've seen Joe Rogan's commentary on, on Joe. I had a 30-minute sit-down conversation with Joe Biden last week because I was on his podcast, it should air soon. And he is fine, lucid, mm. strong, like in that setting. And having been on the debate stage with him a number of times and then seen him debate, like that stuff's not easy. You no. know, like if you can just stand up there and just like debate on national TV or do a town hall for like a you know, hour two hours. He still is very, very strong in many respects. And I I think that the concern around his aging is overblown from my exposure to him as a human being, like I've been around him and and like, he's fine, right? You know, it's like, and you actually could not do some of the things he's done. If you really were struggling, you know, in the serious, serious way. I mean, of course, you know, he's getting older, you know, in the sense, I mean, that's just empirical fact. But but that stuff, in my experience with him directly, is not as much of a concern, and it's been overblown for a number of reasons. Part of it's, I think, in the internet, it's like, if you wanted to parse something, you could make anyone, I think, seem yeah. very very gaff prone Yeah. And, you know, obviously, Joe, you know, I mean, he's, you know, it's like he, he's had some turns of phrase that, 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 you know, you'd look at, you know, and, and see that, that you know, they weren't ideal. On the, the Tara read front, you know, the, the way I think about this, Sam's it's like, like w- when we've seen other people in this circumstance, like a pattern has emerged where if you look at any of like the serial predators, you know, it's like it's it's never one. It's like that they, there's just like this whole freaking drumbeat. Mm. And, and in my mind, like if you were to say, hey, has Joe, you know, like sort of intruded on someone's personal space in a way that we're like, you know, rustled or touched the shoulder, that sort of thing. It's like, sure, you know. But to me, one of the reasons why the media is treating the Tara Reid allegations the way they are is that there's like this one isolated event that seems very, very out of character. And that if he was the sort of person that could do what he's accused of doing, in my opinion, the odds of there being other episodes that are similar to that sometime in the intervening 27 years would be like 99% plus because in every other instance it'd be like if harvey weinstein did it to like one aspiring actress and then like never again (laughs) like like, like that's not the way someone in that position of authority who's a true predator would operate like you would see it it would happen again you know like months later months later like you know there'd be this whole freaking cascade that we've seen with other folks,
1: and which we've seen with Trump. I mean, you know, what is he? Yeah, trailing? Exactly. Nineteen like allegations.
0: Trump, and then it's like, yeah. you know, and when you talked about this video of him, like, you know, fondling someone at a, a pageant, I thought to myself, it's like, does that exist? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, like the we wouldn't be surprised if it did, right? So, to me, those two concerns are not really the 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 main areas of this election where it's going to be contested, and that leads me to the third thing. The third thing is that this really is going to become like it or not. I believe, like a referendum on Trump. Mm. And whether 50% or more of us say this is not the direction we want the country to be heading in, we need a change. And the the funny thing is, Joe defeated me, among other people, and Joe won states that he didn't set foot in. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like there's like this familiarity and comfort people have mm. with Joe, where this election, I believe, is going to be. Like an up or down vote on Trump, and I think that people are going to put thumbs down because we're trapped in our homes. This this pandemic has been mishandled at like the highest levels. Uh, you still have chaos in the PPE procurement markets with the federal government outbidding states and just swooping in and grabbing gear for a national stockpile, and like rich states are outbidding poor states, even as the biggest public health problems are in poor parts of the Southeast in like Louisiana and Mississippi. So I think that Joe, like you shouldn't evaluate it as like, Oh, you know, like in the, the way where Joe's campaign is limited right now because of the crisis, like he's, you know, there's no massive rally. Like I expected at this point in time where I'd be out there campaigning for Joe Hmm. because we'd all be out there having rallies and, and, The fact that we're not is categorically not a good thing, because it deprives Joe's campaign of the opportunity to make a case in like conventional ways and and have these great backdrops and have press and surrogates and me and a dozen other people out there pounding the pavement making the case for him. So all of that is not good, but I still believe that there's a great chance that Joe wins and Trump loses because so many people are fed up with this White House.
1: Well, how much should we blame the other Republicans? And I guess I'm. it's an interesting question to put to you because it's pretty obvious that the way you campaigned and, and your, your political intuitions here to be as nonpartisan as possible and, and just to focus on problems and your recognition that there has to be a bipartisan solution to these problems is fairly overt. But When you look at the way in which the Republican Party has become a personality cult around Trump, people with real political reputations, you know, people who used to be serious people, even if you, you know, whether or not you agreed with their policies, the way in which they have enabled this incompetent crime family, the Trumps, and propped them up in the face of a deluge of scandal, really. But the deluge has been so incessant that it's impossible to, f- to focus on any part of it long enough to blow it up into a proper scandal. It's just this has not seemed like normal American politics. I mean, everyone expects some degree of venality and complicity and cowardice in politics, but this is just it just seems like we're in another universe. I mean, we we are in some kind of banana republic territory with how our politics has turned, and it, it is the story of Republican Complicity, people like Mitch McConnell, and so I, I guess even beyond the election, I mean, I, I think if Trump loses in the fall, I think many people will feel like there should be some reckoning, right? I mean, we're, I feel like we're going to need a, a truth and reconciliation commission to process the toxicity of the last four years, and that's in the in the best case of Biden winning and all of us being able to to hit reset in 2021.
0: There's no truth and reconciliation tribunal coming.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Politically, how how should we walk that line in the next six months with respect to casting blame on Trump's enablers? And just in the case of Biden winning, I guess I'm tempted to say, all right, we're giving a mulligan to everybody because there's so many problems we have to solve. So, you know, you remember those four years where you you utterly destroyed the reputation of the United States on the world stage and flirted with the complete unraveling of our institutions? Well, we're just going to give you no harm, no foul on that, and let's reset. But I feel like the rancor may not end. I think that it just may not be open to us because we will finally confront what a horror show this has been.
0: One thing I disagree with you on, Sam, is this thing has been going on for decades.
1: Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't actually deny that. And, yeah, and I deny that. And, yeah, I wouldn't deny that.
0: Yeah, I don't think you would. And I think that a lot of this is still the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008 when the market crashes, people lose their homes, communities are devastated. And then we turn to Wall Street for guidance as to how to conduct the bailout. We print $4 trillion to recapitalize the banks. No one goes to jail. Rich people stay the heads of companies, you know, like and then from that, there's still been this massive like lack of accountability where people looked up and said, how the heck do these people trash the economy and and no one's punished. And then the the opiate epidemic with Purdue Pharma killing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans, like our sons, daughters, neighbors. Kids, like I, I can't tell you how many times I, I was on the trail and people had children die of drug overdoses. It happened all the time, mm. uh, not all the time. Like literally, I've met dozens, hundreds of Americans who would say to me either during an event or right after the event, "That was my son," "That was my brother." Everywhere, mm. I mean, it, it was something like like nine Americans dying an hour. And so when you go out to towns, like that's their son, daughter, wife. And does anyone go to jail for Purdue Pharma? No, does like the Sackler family get buildings at Harvard named after them? And yes, like the museum wing's named after them? It's like, sure, Sackler wing, great. And it's literal blood money. And, And then years after the fact, now some lawsuits are being brought and Purdue Pharma is being held somewhat accountable. But the Sackler family, last I checked, was still something like the 25th richest family in the country or something along those lines. And then you have Trump, and in my opinion, Trump becomes president because of the lack of accountability, where people are looking up saying, like, this is not working for me at all. These institutions are just sort of pretending to look out for me. They don't care. And then Trump comes and is there just saying, the system is rigged, drain the swamp. Like, these people are all full of shit. And there are millions of Americans that were like, yeah, that's right. Like, you know, and, and then yeah. there are these institutions that are like mock horrified, but meanwhile, they're sticking him on the air twenty four seven, they're just ginning up the ratings or selling the ads. And then he becomes our president and he is accelerating the corruption. And I agree with you that it's like at a more blatant and brazen level now where he is just trying to bully anyone who throws an obstacle in the way of him profiteering and his family, you know, like doing multi million, multi-billion dollar favors for friendly supporters and companies that they have Deals with, so I agree. It's like a whole other level. But this stuff's been building up for decades, and people are so angry and despondent and distraught. And the question is, how do we actually transform this? Mm. So I ran for president because I thought we needed something really big, dramatic. And I thought that the fact that I wasn't a politician was not a bad thing. You know, that <laughs> there are a lot of Americans who are like, yeah, sure. At this point, because our politics really have been taken captive. And I I can go into detail as to the mechanics of how our politics have been taken captive. So assuming Joe Biden becomes our president, then how does the cleanup look? And the best case scenario, which I think is on the table, is that we invest trillions of dollars, generational levels of resources in a new Marshall Plan to rebuild the United States of America, and that we end up Rewriting the rules of the economy fundamentally. And I think that's going to be on the table because the economy will be so broken. There'll be mm. so much suffering, so much joblessness, so much despair. And the, the fundamental reality that I learned running for president is that the feedback mechanism between our elected leaders and the people of this country has been broken, that uh, essentially there is no feedback mechanism. That you're supposed to have the ability to obviously like elect certain people, and then the media is supposed to be holding people accountable. This stuff is not really working the way that you would hope it was. And so now there's this almost collective like thrashing about for some other way to fix these things because the feedback mechanism is broken. And the recognition among our elected leaders and our Two dominant political parties, that the feedback mechanism is broken is largely absent. Is that they still think that the feedback mechanism is working because they interact with, you know, a relatively narrow group of individuals who still show up to the cocktail parties, still Mm -hmm. write the checks, still, you know, like do the things that they've been doing. So So this is like the backdrop for it all. And I am optimistic that there is going to be this once in a century opportunity come 2021 to make big changes because no rational person will look around and say things are all right that we don't need to do something big
1: mm. well how do we not lose that opportunity let's assume well having four more years of trump is is one way to lose it obviously so that that's has to be the first hurdle we clear but you know assuming we clear that you know, you just pointed to decades of a bipartisan failure to not deal successfully with the problem of, you know, I would say bad incentives ultimately and and moral hazard, right? So the fact that there was a bipartisan failure not to hold anyone accountable after 2008 and the financial collapse, I mean, that's that's obvious and clearly that did pave the way for Trump. I guess with Trump, the, the, what seems Impossible to have foreseen, and strikes me as highly not normal and and corrosive, is I mean really is the consequences of the dishonesty and the, the you know the devaluation of any kind of norms around respect for institutions and expertise and everything we've built as a civilized cosmopolitan society. So for instance, we're in the middle of a public health and an economic catastrophe, and you have a former president, a Republican president, George Bush, putting out a three-minute piece of video, you know, trying to lift everyone's spirits and and get beyond partisanship and, and absolutely expected of him and done more or less impeccably. And then you have Trump tweeting, you know, derogatorily about it, saying, you know, where were you when I was the victim of the greatest hoax ever? We just see his personality disorder advertised yet again, probably for the 10th time that day. And this is something that the Republican Party now has enabled. I mean, there were so many turning points. It was just, you know, they, they were supporting Trump when he was dancing on the grave of John McCain, you know, one of their superstars. So it's just the fact that we got there seems so bizarre. And I feel like there has to be some kind of reset. But I mean, to come back to your, the more important point, how do we not miss this opportunity to have a digital Marshall plan. And because just that forget about everything we're about to suffer. Or we're suffering now and will continue to suffer as a result of the pandemic, you know, both, you know, health-wise and financially. We have these massive problems that we don't even have the bandwidth to grapple with. I mean, just like just solving the cybersecurity problem for the next decade. That was a massive problem that we had to figure out some way to deal with. And as far as I know, we're just sleepwalking toward a precipice there. In our current situation, imagine what life would be like if we lost the internet right now. I mean, the internet is the only thing keeping us together, right? Imagine if one of our adversaries just brought whole sections of our digital lives to a standstill with a cyber attack now. It's just... We have to figure out some way to, to ensure that that sort of thing is a vanishingly low probability, and, and we know it isn't.
0: Oh, yeah, no. It's significant. I mean, the vulnerabilities are significant.
1: So assuming we have a Biden administration, how do we not get back to the old normal, which, you know, as you point out, is precisely the, the system of, of bad incentives and politics as, as usual that got us Trump?
0: the the challenge is getting enough unity in congress to pass some major major initiatives and spending bills that put us on our track to meaningfully recover and a lot of it is going to be around changing our measurements where right now you have us still trumpeting gdp and stock market prices that have essentially zero relationship with how most Americans are doing. So first, if you would redefine our measures of success to revolve around our health, mental health, how our kids are doing, environmental sustainability, freedom from substance abuse, labor force participation rate, affordability, like ability to to afford the basics, then you'd have a chance. Now, is that in the cards? And this is really the big question you're posing, Sam, is that do the Republicans become reasonable company builders and partners post Trump? You know, and like right now, are they just looking up and shrugging off unacceptable venal behavior? It's a yes. Like, do they then have to become part of the solution starting 2021? Ideally, yes. And I'm open to the fact that they will have a very strong interest in that because. They're going to go back to their communities and the suffering's going to be there, too. You know, it's like it's, it's going to be impossible to miss. Like there are going to be people lined up outside their offices at their homes. And they're going to go back to D.C. and they're going to be like, all right, like, what are we going to do? And so that to me is like the, the practical path forward that I have real hope for, because Trump took over the Republican Party in part, in my opinion because their ideas had run out of gas. And like, what are the Trumpian ideas? Like, you know, it, it's actually sort of unclear, except for bullying and having this particularly narrow construction of like a American self-interest and a degree of isolationism and protectionism. I think that there is going to be a real hunger for a set of practical proposals that people can bring back to their districts and constituencies and say, hey, look, we did this. So traditionally, something like infrastructure has been bipartisan, where if you come back and say, hey, guess what? Like, we're rebuilding highways. We're going to make sure that 99.8% of the country gets internet. Like, that's broadband and high speed. Like, these are things that I think cross party lines, uh, Hmm. you know, and then we can start thinking bigger about how to actually measure an economy in ways that map to the 21st century and one of them could be for example something around a cybersecurity scorecard now it's much much harder to secure infrastructure than it is to hack it i mean that that's yeah. the truth and so i would not want to be the person who's saying like oh we can like somehow make our internet inv- invulnerable to sabotage in that way what you have a better chance of doing realistically is try to rebuild some of our alliances and partnerships abroad so that We don't have the kind of relationship with that many actors where they're going to be trying to bring us down in that in that way, at least the nation level resources. You know, it's like, will there be individual bad actors and orgs, of course, but some of like the most destructive things take government level resources. So we would need to try to reinvest in diplomacy and some kind of world order, which the Mm. U.S. has become absent from over the last number of years, and this is one thing that you can definitely lay at Trump's feet, is that Trump has done a great job reducing our level of trust between even our historic allies.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and he's bolstered our adversaries. I mean, he's he's reduced both soft and hard power, despite defense spending. I mean, it's just, it seems that no one takes us seriously on the world stage, you know, friend or foe. And speaking of foes, you know many people now are worrying about what seems to be a a now a cold war or at least a building cold war with China on several fronts and it's unhelpful that the current pandemic you know originated there and and the talk about this origination is so poisonous obviously we need to find a collaborator in China to help solve this problem and I think that is not incompatible with actually blaming China for certain practices. I mean, whether this is the result of wet markets or whether it's the result of of a a virus that was being studied in a lab and it leaked out, you know, people seem to be fascinated by that difference. I see a distinction without a real difference there because in both cases it's negligence. I mean, we're not talking about a weaponized virus that has been intentionally released, but we we clearly need better communication and collaboration to to stop, you know, obviously unsafe practices and to get everyone on the same page epidemiologically. But we have, we clearly have a many reasons to be concerned about hostility between the U.S. and China and us falling into what Graham Allison has dubbed the Thucydides trap, you know, where we're just sort of on a path to war because we have two superpowers. One, the legacy power, who's obviously faltering, and the rising power, who, for various cultural reasons, believes that its supremacy is long overdue. So I'm wondering what you think about China. I mean, I don't know, you obviously, your last name suggests you know something about China, but...
0: Well, that's certainly what the debate moderators thought, Sam. I think I got a lot of China questions in those debates.
1: (laughs) How much is China your focus with respect to um, global politics
0: it's something i'm very very focused on and concerned about for some of the reasons you cite it's flowing in both directions right now where if you look at the level of hostility towards china in the united states it's higher than it's been in decades it's shot up even in this last just number of months weeks and months and the same is true on the other side, by the way, that if you rewound a number of years, most people in China looked up to and admired the United States. And then now, in part because of some propaganda on the part of the Chinese government, there's a lot more anti US sentiment. So we are heading towards a Cold War dynamic or worse. I agree with you that it's, you know, the fact that this virus originated in China is making it, and the Chinese government, screwed up in a massive way by not coming clean faster yeah. uh, and suppressing information like those are things that i'm angry about that i think anyone could be legitimately angry about given the scale of the the crisis but if you want to clean up the wet markets you know who you have to deal with china it's like you know you used to be like hey china like let's freaking clean up the wet markets and they're more likely to do that if you have a, an actual line of communication Yeah, open to them. Some of the biggest problems that we face around climate change and AI and pandemics, the pandemics of the future, require that we have at least some level of collaboration with China. So how do you navigate this tension without letting it blow up into something like a Cold War or even worse? And that's, A massive challenge. And it's right now in large part because the Republicans have already essentially come on the record saying, hey, if anyone asks you about the coronavirus, blame China. And their hope is that by framing it as a Chinese effort, even in some cases like a racialized effort, then it just distracts from Trump's mishandling of the pandemic. And one of the outgrowths of that is a rise in xenophobia, a rise in anti. Chinese sentiment that then spills over into Asian Americans because, mm. you know, the average American, when they see someone of Asian descent, they're not like, oh, this person's Korean American. So you know, they have nothing to do with my like anti Chinese feelings. We're not wired that way. At least most of us are not. And so one of the things that we have to take great, great pains in is to distinguish between the Chinese government, which we can have very, very serious problems with, but still recognize that we have to deal with them if we're going to solve for some of the biggest problems of our time and then the Chinese people, and then Chinese Americans, and then Asian Americans. These are all four very, very different groups. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, and, and you can have a serious problem with the Chinese government without somehow ascribing it to all Chinese people or all Asian, Asian Americans or people of Asian descent.
1: One thing that this pandemic has revealed is how precarious our dependence on the global supply chain is you know the fact that we apparently can't produce cotton swabs at scale yes or i was masks. just
0: talking to the to jay Inslee, the governor of washington state and he said that that that's their bottleneck right now is freaking swabs and i was like you got to be kidding me but you know like that it's not just washington obviously it's everywhere
1: yeah so so what do you think about obviously the the reasons to globalize so many industries were purely economic. I mean, it was just advantageous to to get things produced more cheaply in China and, you know, India, and whether whether you're talking about ordinary materials or or the components of drugs or even, you know, whole drugs that we rely on. And yet the wisdom of that just evaporates under conditions like this, where you absolutely mission-critical things cannot be procured And then when you add a layer of international hostility, or at least lack of cooperation on top of that, it just seems untenable. So how would you think about bringing back critical manufacturing to the U.S.? Obviously, we're not going to produce everything we need ourselves, but it just seems like a fully distributed global economy in the current circumstance, is not working very well. And we need some backup plan.
0: Now, I I would adopt three approaches, Sam. Number one is, in many of these instances, we actually could be making the gear we need, the swabs, the gowns, the masks, if we pushed more of our companies to shift their operations in that direction. And we just haven't really done it as much as we should have. This is where Trump's Terrible leadership is costing us lives. If that if if I were president right now, we could be manufacturing more of these things even based upon what we have right now. If we were just to go to firms and say, look, how much is it going to cost to try and shift your operations to produce these things that we need right now instead of this? Like, how long will it take you? How much does it cost? We will make you whole. We could be doing much more in that direction that we are not right now. Like the some private firms have shifted. Operations voluntarily, but we could be doing much, much more. Number two, we should have the capacity to make some of these things ourselves, and it's not just things like cotton swabs and PPE, but like a lot of our drugs are being made in India or China. Yeah, and you could look at that and say, well, that's actually something that we can't just necessarily globalize or outsource in that way, and that we would want to invest in some kind of ongoing domestic. Production facility, even if it was just a contingency plan, if it was subsidized by the government. One of the big problems here, Sam, is that we've just grown to worship the market so much yeah. that when our government says, oh, that thing loses money, then everyone like turns on it. It's like, oh, the post office is losing money. Fuck the post office. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, that's the purpose of government. The purpose of government is to pay for the thing that the market doesn't support. yeah. So the fact that the market doesn't support it is not a reason not to do it. It's like, hey, what, you need a domestic drug production facility in case of emergency? Yes. right. And then you just spend the money on it and then you hope you don't need it. And then when you do need it, you thank goodness you have a functional government. Number three is if you are going to outsource production of various things, then you need to try and maintain really positive diplomatic relationships with the, the co- countries that are housing The these products, and so now that's a tall order. But you know that's the reality. Like if all of our drugs are being made in India and China, not all are, but you know significant proportion are, then you have to try and make sure that you have ready access if you're in in a crisis situation, um, which means trying to rebuild relationships with these countries rather than doing the opposite. Yeah,
1: this is just one of those areas where doctrinaire libertarianism, which unfortunately infects so much of the culture of wealth, especially Silicon Valley, I find. I mean, just you just have a, a lot of smart people who, for whatever reason, read Ayn Rand too early so as to be inoculated against her faults. They think that Atlas Shrugged is the greatest book ever written, and they just don't see How ludicrous it is to think that absolutely everything we could possibly want to do as a species can be most efficiently motivated by an unregulated market, right? It's just there are drugs that most people uh, will only have to take once in their life, but the availability of those drugs is the difference between life and death, right? It's a bad business to get in from a pure profit motive, and yet. Do we want to be able to produce those drugs? You know, obviously we do. So it's just...
0: Well, Silicon Valley is an extreme environment, Sam. But here, here's the... Like what happens is there are people that fought, fought, fought in a very, very competitive market-driven environment. And then if they win and they're now rich beyond imagination, then it's very hard for them to turn around and then say, well, it turns out like this system that I have fought my way through, it turns out it's missing like the these whole other sets of concerns or problems. Like it's very difficult to be able to to think and feel that way if you've yeah. spent years and years like climbing up through through a jungle, uh, essentially. And the best of the folks are folks like Jack Dorsey, who, you know, is like, look, I've got billions of dollars and how can I put it to to use in a way that benefits humanity the most? And like even though I, I made this money, like, you know, the the money has to have a purpose beyond itself. And I, I know I'm, I'm. I mean, I know you have many friends in tech, as, as I do. And some of them resemble both extremes. Really, some of them have said things that I've, I've been in a room for. i have been like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> like in a, like a negative way, where it's like they'll, they'll say something that that you were like, oh, I'm, I'm glad like no one's recording this today, anyway. Yeah. And then others will will like express like the, these incredible aspirations for humanity a lot of people supported my campaign in silicon valley a lot of people support universal basic income in silicon valley in part because they see what the future of work will be and now everyone's seeing it but also because some of them are just excellent people excellent human beings like they they see pointless human suffering that can be alleviated they want to do it and so uh, you know like that those are some of my favorite people who have yeah. in some ways they've been like freed of some of like this market based thinking because they reached a certain point, and they said, "Okay, like, what is the point of my success?" And then they turn towards higher pursuits that elevate us all.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the crucial point for me ethically is to observe in one's own life how much of one's success is due to luck. Really, on some level, if you read the word "luck" correctly, it's virtually all of it. All the tools you are using to succeed however inherent they seem to your own person you know your intelligence your grit your desire to try again even after you fail right none of these are things that you've invented right i mean you're finding these resources in yourself based on you know your genes and your upbringing and happenstance you can't account for the idea that anyone is truly self-made is a fantasy and then there's the, just the obvious rolls of the dice that no one can own and which can mean everything for the outcome of an enterprise. I mean the fact that I'm able to work in the current environment at more or less a hundred percent of my prior efficiency is due to pure luck. Even to, to sharpen that up more clearly, I mean I was talking to a screenwriter friend the other day, I mean to actually a married couple, you know, both of whom are screenwriters, you know, one of whom can have nothing produced because he he writes ordinary television and, and films, but uh, his wife is uh, in in the middle of production on an animated show, right? And and so there's absolutely no problems. Just by dumb luck, she's writing a cartoon for grownups, and everything's going fine, right? So
0: she planned it that way, Sam. Yeah, yeah. she saw the pandemic coming. <laughs> she was like, right. "Cartoons only for me."
1: However fortunate you are, you know, you could be in the 0.1% of the economy or right in the middle. Whole fortunes depend on pure changes in luck in circumstances like this and in really every other circumstance. And so to recognize that is to want to cancel the most shocking consequences of that kind of inequality. There's so many people out there who are walking around thinking, as you say, they worked really hard. I mean, the difference is, rich people today, for the most part, work harder than anyone else. It's not to say that their jobs are by definition harder. It's not, you know, obviously, you know, they're not and breaking the hours rocks. Hours
0: have gone up, not down. There used to be like the leisure class who would like chill yeah. out and play polo. <laughs> yeah, this, this <laughs> is it was.
1: this is not Downton Abbey in Silicon Valley. Right? I mean, the people are working their asses off and they feel they they own it. They own their success. They they deserve it. But with that comes a sense of everyone else should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but some people don't have boots, right? And your boots can be taken away from you based on pure noise in the system. And so, anyway, that's my I, rant I hope, about I mean, wealth I hope you're right
0: that the inequities are so stark that it ends up bringing us together towards new solutions. Certainly one thing I always keep in mind is like, I'm not working as hard as the person in the meat processing plant. You know what I mean? Like, if I went in there, like, I probably wouldn't last a week. No doubt. Like, and and these are people that are getting paid minimum wage or close to it. And at this point, it's relatively high risk because, you know, some of those plants are getting infected. So I agree with you, though, that one of the problems with getting folks at the top engaged in thinking bigger about what we need to do is that we've had this kind of savage meritocracy that if you've climbed up through it, then you've worked really, really hard. And so you're like, well, you know, like I earned it. And like you said, they did work really, really hard. Though, you know, there were all these structural things that that often like made their, their success possible. But they worked really, really hard. And I, like you, I admire entrepreneurs and operators and folks that kick ass and, you know, like break their backs. But the, one of the things I know is that, like that food truck operator broke his back too, or her back. And now their business got blasted to smithereens through no fault yeah. of theirs. Like the the thing that breaks my heart is that like the people who are getting pummeled the worst right now are the people who went out on a limb, started something like entrepreneurs, a lot of creatives, you know, who like went out there and tried to do something awesome that they cared about. They're getting destroyed right now, possibly for a generation or more. Who's making out the best? If you got a good private banking relationship, like you know, you're like am um, still trading i mean i saw just now like the stock market has rebounded uh, to a large extent like the like the folks who are the best situated are better insulated and then if you were out there trying to do something you cared about you are probably getting wrecked and like that that makes me so sad and and it does fly in the face of what you describe as like well you know it's like somehow we make our own luck it's like are you kidding me like th- this thing is just pointing out how luck dependent we all are
1: yeah, I mean, again, if, if you are running the most successful restaurant in, you know, any city on earth, right, and counted yourself among the very wealthy as a result, you just happen to be in an industry that just got zeroed out, right? The spin of the roulette wheel here is just absolutely obvious for people. The distinction you're making with respect to how people are being helped here, is, is that a distinction at the level of you know whether money is being effectively targeted to individuals versus corporations but right now yeah, yeah. A,
0: a relatively small fraction of the now nearly 3 trillion dollars that's being dispensed went directly to people hmm. uh, most of it went to big companies which is getting distributed through banks for the most part it's one thing that also shocks and disgusts me because there there's so many people suffering that are never going to see a dime of this sam and even now there are bills being considered right now that are going to send cash relief to people that somehow the majority of members of Congress have not gotten on board with, despite the fact that they've already underwritten like multiples of that towards big businesses. And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, if you can't see the need right now to get money into people's hands, then there's something seriously wrong with you. And you're still signing off on like giant corporate bailouts, the equivalent, because of these trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars, that are getting produced right now, they're, they're being put in the hands of financial institutions to distribute in the vast majority of cases. And most of that money is not going to be seen by the average American. That's that's mm. what, what's what's happening right now, Sam. I mean, like the, mm. the people think about the stimulus checks, like this $1,200, you know, 500 bucks for kids for millions of Americans. Like that was the stimulus. No, that stimulus, like that was something like 250 billion of the like 2.8 trillion, it's like maybe 10% of the total amount went straight to humans and then the rest of it's getting freaking clogged up in the arteries of these financial institutions where if you were a nail salon you're trying to figure out how the heck to get that money and then like do you have a relationship with the right bank (laughs) it's literally coming down to that like how many banking relationships do you think that nail salon or the food truck has zero Hmm. probably (laughs) like maybe one Maybe they have some Citibank business account that they freaking applied for. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, is that going to do it? Uh, like, probably not. You know, it's like, if you have a random Citibank account, like, is that going to get you the the stimulus money? It, no, it's like, what we're talking about is like, in many cases, you have like, high level bank. That's one reason why you saw all these freaking giant companies like Ruth's Chris and Shake Shack all of a sudden being like, hey, we got millions. And then everyone like booing them being like, boo, that money's not for you. And I hate to say it, but it's like, like, I don't blame those companies because it's like, well, technically, that money was for me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, technically, I got it faster than everyone else because I, I have a fast track to, you know, to like Chase's private bank or whatever it is. So, uh, this is one reason why I'm so passionate about the fact that we need to just change the unit of distribution, like get it to people and just make it freaking clean, transparent, like dollar for dollar, instead of just trusting our systems to do things. Our systems, are not designed to do and and a lot of it unfortunately is going to get caught up in like the the wheels of these institutions and a fair amount of corruption in many cases
1: has anyone worked out the technical requirements of implementing ubi do we know how we would build a system that is uh you know sufficiently safeguarded against you know fraud or anything else that might Concern us, and you know, where, you know, where the government can just hit send on trillions of dollars in a circumstance like this.
0: Yeah, so there's uh, one proposal that I loved, which is that the Federal Reserve just set up an account for every single person. Uh, you know, just give you a Social Security number. Here's your Federal Reserve account, and then you can connect to it however you'd like, and then you just put money in it. So it could connect to your bank account if you have a bank account. If you don't have a bank mm-hmm. account, you can get it um, in other ways. I mean, there there are ways you could do it. What, I'm, what what my organization is doing right now, so we, I, I think I opened up with like the description of, of our trying to distribute this money. So we, we gave a million dollars to folks in the Bronx through Neighborhood Trust, but obviously, you know, there's so much need everywhere. So we just started taking applications on our website and then paying people via Venmo or PayPal. Hmm. And we verified who you are in many cases because we have hundreds of volunteers who would just like call you and be like, okay, here's what you said about your situation and who you are. Is that who you are? Yes. All right. Here's the money. Now we're we're only giving two hundred fifty to five hundred dollars, so we don't care about you know like fraud. Like you could probably pull one over on Humanity Forward if you if you really tried. But we're in a situation where that should be like the least of our concerns. You know, it's like the the house is on fire. You don't care if like you spilled a drop of water like from the hose <laughs> you know it's like trying, yeah. like the big problem is that you're like you're you're just not actually firing the hose or like you're not using enough water those are the real concerns w- when the economy's on fire which it is so the the government could do something much more aggressive than it's doing for people in so many ways you know it's like like i i don't hate the use of the IRS and uh, the, the tax refund mechanism to get people money that's actually a reasonably robust and time efficient way to go but the lion's share of the resources of these stimulus should be going to people not corporate companies and then we should be exhausting all these other ways to get people money if they don't have a tax return if they don't have a bank account uh, you know it's like it pretty much you can imagine a world where it's like look here's Federal Reserve, we send these accounts, put money in for you and come and get it. We'll just verify who you are. And we can have different ways of doing that. And you could even accept, frankly, a certain level of fraud. Like maybe someone managed to like somehow, like, you know, like there's a social security number of someone who they somehow managed to like, you know, get in there and the person died and they didn't tell anyone or whatever the heck the, the source of fraud is. But that should be a very, very marginal concern relative to just getting resources into people's hands. Cause right now you have lines around the block for food banks, like people waiting in hours for food, for waiting in lines for hours for food. And this is just beginning. Like Mm. I I understand the way the economy works where like the, there are so many, like 78% of us living paycheck to paycheck, you cut off income for a lot of them. Desperation is gonna set in really, really quickly. And civilization is not infinitely resilient. It's not like, oh, that's going to suck for you. No, it's like, no, eventually it's going to come out, start taking stuff, which is what, frankly, like most of us would do if we were put in desperate enough circumstances. That's what we have to try and head off. That, yeah. to me, is the problem we should be solving for instead of like, oh, like, how are we going to monitor this? Because like the, the fixation on our institutions and our bureaucracies that are not set up to, to do this very well at all they're going to miss millions of people, and the suffering is going to be far and wide, and it's going to spread even to the people that right now, like, are not suffering, like in this, in the sense of, like, you're going to, and this to me was one of the, the underpinnings, like this is enlightened self-interest. It's not like, oh, I'll be fine. You're screwed. It's like if enough people are screwed, then we're all screwed.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and frankly, that was absolutely obvious even before the current crisis i mean just when you think of the conversation around the problem of homelessness it was becoming more visible 6 months ago when you think of you know the quality of life of a rich person in a city like san francisco or los angeles or new york it is speaking purely out of you know self interest you know enlightened or otherwise you know it is radically diminished by having homeless people everywhere in sight in what should be the the nicest cities in the world. Who wants to live this way? Again, forget about the possibility of actually having compassion for other human beings and caring about their well-being, even if you're a sociopath. There's no sociopath who wants to have to step over people on the sidewalk who are just playing out the utter chaos of their lives, whether it's based on mental illness or drug addiction or just, again, just pure bad luck in front of everyone on a daily basis. I mean, it's just we need to figure out how to solve these these social problems. And you can get there. The truth is you don't even need a monicum of compassion. You just have to be wisely selfish to see where this is all headed and want, want to pull the brakes.
0: I, I could not agree more. Or something basic like having your kids teacher be able to live within commuting distance of your school. You know, like not even as extreme as like having to step over homeless people or people who are hooked on drugs everywhere you go, which is going to be more of a an everyday reality for for more and more people. And and this harkens back to the problems the market wants to solve and doesn't want to solve. If I could come up with AI that helps drive trucks perfectly that's like a multi-billion dollar product solution. I'm like one of the wealthiest people in the country pretty quick. But what is my financial incentive to help the hundreds of thousands of people who used to drive those trucks? It's like, well, nothing really. Or or if like I revolutionize retail and close uh, half of America's malls, it's like, well, I'll be very successful. But it's like, what is my incentive to somehow look after the cashiers that no longer have jobs? Zero so the the financial incentives don't involve making that homeless person stronger and more whole it doesn't in, involve improving our mental health or, or our soundness and that's what we have to change like that this is this is the winner take all economy to its most extreme in history and like you said even the winners lose yeah And that's not just like, you know, again, like you said, it's not a moral argument. It's not even just like an abstract practical argument. Studies have shown that in a more unequal society, rich people are less happy than if the society is more equal. So this becomes everyone's self interest pretty quickly. The question to me really is whether we can enact a different set of solutions with our current political system that truly is very disconnected very institutionalized very distrustful of people overrun by corporate interests and generally speaking decades behind the curve like can you catch that up in the right time frame that's the mission that was my mission when i ran that's still my mission even now
1: well andrew it's great to speak with you and your job just got harder now you're podcasting yourself. Now you have an excuse to bloviate about all these issues all the time. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm very happy that you and I got to have a um, simulcast conversation here and catch up. Me too, Sam. I feel like this is
0: some kind of crossover special. I don't know if you were a geek growing up, but this is like uh, Marvel and DC getting together. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Right, right. I, I think both of us are probably Marvel. But uh, super grateful to you for the friendship and generosity, where you elevated my campaign at a crucial time, uh, it meant the world to me. Then, I'm just glad that I could live up to your confidence in me. Really, I remember that moment when you reached out saying that uh, you wanted to have me on your podcast, and I felt this—I felt like this sense of like occasion where I, I felt like this was going to be the biggest opportunity I'd have to make my case to people who cared, to people who thought about things deeply. Like, I knew that instinctively, Sam. And oh, when cool. you and I sat down the, those two-plus years ago now, like, uh, it it felt like a bit of history. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate who you are, really. Like, just the fact that you saw this anonymous guy running for president on a set of ideas, and you elevated me and those ideas at the crucial crucial period i'll never forget you for it i'll always appreciate it
1: oh nice well um we'll record a podcast from the white house one of these days and when you uh reboot how old are you andrew you're younger than i am <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, I'm 45
1: in presidential terms that makes
0: me like a spring chicken like yeah growing, growing
1: <laughs> no doubt the story on your political career is not yet written so i'm uh, i'm looking forward to it
0: yeah me too man yeah. Date to the white house yeah. We'll make it happen
1: All right. Well, good luck on the podcast in the meantime, and uh, we'll connect again soon.
0: Love that, Sam. Stay healthy. Thank you, Sam.